People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, and I'm Stephen Kravitz. I'll be with you for the next hour while we talk books. The first half I'll be talking, and the second half we'll be interviewing my former co-host of the book show. That's Terry Shakonovsky, who will be in the studio for a discussion on her book, The Knock on the Door, the story of the detainees' parents' support committee. That's just been released. Terry wrote it together with Sharon Court. Uh, it's published by Picador Africa. That's for the second half of the show. The first half of the show, we've got a number of books to get through. And one of them, uh, I'm, g- I'm going to do this as a giveaway this week and talk about it next week. Uh, that's the new Julian Barnes called, the book's called The Only Story. I've got a copy of the book that we'll give away during the first half of the show. But the first book that I'm going to discuss is a book that I finished last week, and it's one of those books that are absolutely transformational in the way that you see the world, you relate to people, in the way that you understand why people are the way that they are. It's called The Deepest Well, and it's written by Nadine Burke-Harris. It's published by Bluebird Books. And it is, as I said, it's extremely powerful. It's an extremely, extremely important book. Nadine Burke-Harris gave a TED Talk a few years ago about this topic that uh, she's written the, the, this book on. We'll get to the topic in a few moments. The TED Talk was viewed a few million times, and her research into the topic has continued almost into uh, not just research, but into a, almost a mass movement that can actually ap- absolutely revolutionize the world of medicine. So it's 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 a, it's a big book, even though it's only you know a few hundred pages. Uh, my copy, the, the actual text of the book, okay, plus the notes will go to about two hundred and forty pages. But it's a big book. The idea behind the book. Well, let's start with Nadine's life story. Nadine is a Jamaican. She was born in Jamaica. Her family immigrated to America when she was five. Her father is a chemical engineer. She's the only daughter, and she has four brothers. She is a medical doctor, and after she finished all her studying and her residencies in America, she went into a clinic in a very depressed part of San Francisco. It's probably the only depressed part of San Francisco because it's such an expensive city. She's working in a suburb called Bayview and the life experiences of the people who live in Bayview are extremely hard to deal with. It's great poverty, mostly minorities, a lot of discrimination. You'd call it a ghetto suburb, a ghetto neighborhood. And she kept seeing the same symptoms in the children, because it's a pediatric practice, the same symptoms in the children who were coming in to be seen. Learning difficulties, behavioral difficulties, fortunes of kids labeled ADHD. And she said when she kept going through the forms to make a diagnosis, at the bottom of an ADHD diagnosis in America, the form says it can only be diagnosed as ADHD if there are no other possible reasons for this behavior for these learning for 
for the for the behavior that you see and she said she could she couldn't tick that box she kept feeling that there was something more to the children that she was seeing in Bayview something more than just hyperactive or just learning difficulties and in a few interviews that she had with the parents of kids in her in her consultation room she chanced upon the fact that either the asthma or the obesity problems were caused by a very stressful event the father punching a hole through the wall of one of the girls that she was uh, she was she, she had in her consultation room always triggered very very severe asthma episode or the girl who was extremely obese the whole way through her life through a slip of Nadine's tongue it came out that her obesity problems began when she was sexually molested at a young age and Nadine felt that stressful situations were compromising her patient's health she knew that in her gut but as a as a doctor with a strong passion for research, she couldn't go by gut feelings. She had to get research. She had to base her practice and the way that she was dealing with the patients based on strong research. Then one day, somebody passed on to her a big research paper that had been done a few years before, but she had never heard about it. It was done by researchers in San Diego. So she's living in San Francisco. She gets research done in San Diego. And there are huge differences between the populations that she's seeing and the population that this research was done on. The research was done on thousands of middle class, upper middle class white people in the San Diego in the San Diego, in the San Diego suburbs. She's seeing minorities in a very, very poor neighborhood in San Francisco. But this research that she was given shows that ACEs, adverse childhood experiences that a white upper middle class population had experienced in their childhoods could undermine their health for the rest of their life. The numbers were huge. There were 17,000 people included in this research. And the people who did the research had a list of ACEs, of adverse childhood experiences and it doesn't make a difference which adverse childhood experience people have if you have four or more then the possibility of suffering heart attacks cancers hypertension the full range of health issues years 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 later is increased exponentially and with this research all of a sudden what she was seeing in her Bayview practice in a very depressed neighborhood made a lot of sense. And she decided to run with the idea of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, as the underpinning of the problems that she was seeing in Bayview. But she didn't just leave it there. More research that she, whatever research she could get her hands on, she she did. She did research within her own practice, and this became her this this moment when she received that initial research from San Diego, and the first time she saw this phrase 
adverse childhood experiences. That was the, her eureka moment that changed her life, not just her practice, not just the way that she dealt with her patients, but her entire life. And it, it, it's given her a mission to change the way that we view health and the way that we view adverse childhood experiences. We'll be back with more of Nadine Burke Harris's book, The Deepest Well, after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Remember, the books that we discuss on the show have already been posted onto the Facebook page. So go to Facebook, search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. I'm currently talking about a book called The Deepest Well by Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. So I said it's a transformative book. It's published by Bluebird Books. It's a transformative book. It's subtitled Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. But it's not only about you know people growing up in the neighborhoods, in the suburbs, in the townships where we think there's a lot of adverse childhood adversity. It's about all of us because childhood adversity is something that is quite universal. I've also posted on the, my, my second last, my second, my, my second most recent post, a video of Nadine Burke Harris talking at her book launch at a book function in Washington, D.C. at a shop called Politics and Prose. It's an inspirational video to watch. It's about an hour. includes her talking, reading, some, reading from uh, a, few sec, a few excerpts from her book and also fielding questions from an audience who are so harped up by the story information that they're hearing and the story of Nadine Burke Harris that you can feel you can feel that excitement in the air as I was saying before the ad break Nadine found research talking about ACEs adverse childhood experiences and how those experiences can compromise a person's health not in the immediate childhood or adolescent years, but far into the future. That when you hear about a very healthy person who's 45 and they have a heart attack, that could often be because they had four or more ACEs, seven or more definitely, in their childhood, that the stress that those childhood experiences, those adverse childhood experiences gave rise to was never fully dealt with and the person's Health is severely compromised. But the book's not woo-woo stuff. Everything she says is based on huge amounts of research. But she's able to put scientific and medical research papers across in the most accessible English with metaphors and with brilliant explanations that as a lay person reading the book without much of a scientific or medical knowledge, you will be able to understand everything that she's talking about. Another part of the book is her her very, very personal sharing of her life. So it is a memoir. It is a memoir because she shares with you the traumas, the ups, the downs of her life, her own family. And another part of the book is 
her vision because this book uh, this book is a manifesto memoir there is a vision there's a manifesto of how she would like to see the use of aces ace scores feeding into the whole medical system one of the things that she says in the book is that everybody should be given an ace score and it should be regularly updated because life isn't static a person who hasn't had any adverse childhood experiences could go through a year where he has a few just like we all have medical files where our blood type is recorded and our heart pressure our blood pressure our heart rate our cholesterol readings are recorded Nadine's advocating for an ACE score she's a pediatrician she's pushing for American pediatrician societies and associations to have compulsory ACE screening when a child goes to the pediatrician and after that follow up screenings so that the medical establishment whichever doctor you are seeing knows where you stand on the ACE the adverse childhood experience spectrum and they can start dealing with the long term ramifications that these experience will contribute to the person's life. She also talks about her and other people's research in how to deal with having adverse childhood experiences. And once again, there's no pull that you take. There's no simple cure. She has a six-pronged approach. But each one has to be dealt with, has to be monitored, has to go towards creating a more healthy Life, And those six points are nutrition, sleep, very important. When you sleep, your immune system is able to strengthen itself. Uh, then exercise, very, very important. She also talks about meditation, just wellness, the idea of thinking quietly and pros processing your thoughts, meditation. Then therapy. And she specifically identifies, she identifies specific ways of therapies that a person with a lot of adverse childhood experiences should go through. And the last point is good interpersonal relationships, strengthening your relationships. But every single point isn't just something that sounds good. There is research that backs up each of those prongs to deal with adverse childhood experiences in a person, especially if a person's had more than more than four adverse childhood experiences, and definitely if they've had more than seven, because at those numbers, the long-term undermining of a person's health, each of those milestones increases exponentially. The, the book, you, you just can't read the book and not become passionate about it. You actually want to go one, you want to go out and buy a copy of this book to give to your pediatrician and to give to the Minister of Health and to give to the MEC of Health in the Gauteng province and to send to the prince, the, the president of the Pediat Pediatric Association or whatever it's called in South Africa. It's a book that's, it's a call to arms. It's a call for action. It's a call for activism. Just to show a few things that, that how how Nadine is able to put across some very very difficult ideas. The book we're talking about is The Deepest Well by Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. Just before I read a few points, a few a few a few, a few sele selections out, 
Um, the title of the book comes from an actual event that happened in London in the 1840s where there was an outbreak of cholera. And the doctors began to deal with the people who had cholera. But there was one doctor who said, well, let me map the disease on a map of London and see where the people who are getting the cholera are coming from. And he noticed when he mapped the incidences of people where they lived that they were all around a certain well. So he said they all have in common that they're drawing water from the same well. He investigated the well and he found that that well had whatever the, the, the germs or the bacteria that cause cholera. They dealt with the well and the cholera outbreak went away. So the idea of a well is finding the source of a, 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 a health issue and dealing with the source. But here, the title of the book, The Deeper Well, takes that from the physical well to a metaphorical well, that there's a well in our world called stress that is undermining people's ability to have good health for the rest of their life. She's not saying we must change the world, but she's saying we must acknowledge that stress, which is the result of adverse childhood experiences, is undermining society's long-term health. And if we deal with the deeper well, if we deal with how to, if, 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 if we change the way that medicine views people who have ad, had adverse childhood experiences and doctors read the research, they buy into how we can treat people who have adverse childhood experiences. We can change the world's health. We'll be back with a few excerpts straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're talking about a book, The Deepest Well, by Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. I've posted the details of the book on our Facebook page. Go to People of the Book on 101. We'll go to Facebook, search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And I've also posted a video of Dr. Nadine Burke Harris talking about the book, Her Life's Passion and her, her mission, and also a few personal stories that are all part of the book. I, I said earlier that Nadine writes in a way where she makes a lot of medical research very accessible. Here is a few, a few paragraphs. Uh, she's talking about the debate of nature versus nurture, Considering, and then she says over here, scientists can now say pretty definitely that there is no separating the two. In fact, we now know that both environment and genetic code shape both biology and behavior. Considering how closely genes and environment work together, it's no surprise that the debate raged on for hundreds of years with no winner in sight. Luckily, with the advances in science, we are finally able to see that there is a vital synchronicity that determines what we look like, how our bodies work, and ultimately who we are. Most people know that the DNA, that DNA is the genetic code, the basic blueprint for your, for your biology. To take that understanding a step further, your body uses this code as a template to produce the proteins that make up new cells and ensure that all the things inside those cells function. Every cell has your entire genetic code in it, as well as the machinery to read the code and decide which parts of the sequence to translate into proteins. Environment and experience play a huge role in determining which parts of your genetic code are read and transcribed in each new cell your body creates. 
how does your experience or environment do that? Well, it turns out that the body doesn't actually read every word of its DNA. What scientists have discovered is that baked into the cells is both the genome, that's your entire genetic code, and the epigenome, another layer of chemical markers that sit on top of your DNA and determine which genes get read and transcribed into proteins and which ones don't. The term epigenetic actually means above the genome. These epigenetic markers are handed down from patient, from parents to child along with the DNA. This is how accessible Nadine Burke Harris's writing is. And it also shows you, she writes on the genetic level, how adverse, adverse childhood experiences can undermine a person's long-term health. She's not asking us to take a leap of faith to believe her. She's going to the genes and showing us how the genes react to adverse childhood experiences so that whenever she says a solution to these problems, a remedy, a way of changing your life to fix the problems up, you know on a genetic level, the, the lowest possible level within your body, how her six-pronged approach is going to reverse or be, re, rebalance a person's body so that their health won't be as compromised. The book also, you might think that, well, she works in basically an inner city ghetto in America. This is for poor people, or this is for people who obviously experience a lot of trauma in their life. She talks about being at a dinner table with a table full of high-profile women. And she's talking about the ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences, and the research, and how it undermines a person's long-term health. And one of the women on the ta at the table, someone who heads up a very successful startup company and has been on the front cover of Time magazine, opens up and tells her ACE, her, well, her adverse experience in life to the rest of the people at the table, and how it has put her children at a disadvantage. Adverse childhood experiences affect everyone. And at the end of the book, we have Nadine Burke Harris issuing a clarion call for the changing of the world's, the first America and then the world's medical establishment in order to take this research into account and create healthier people. And she has this vision at the end of the book where there will come a time that we have to spend so little money on long-term health issues because it's all been addressed in childhood that there, there, there will be a, a, a medical dividend back to society because we're not spending billions of dollars around the world on issues that are the result of ACEs. It's a very, very, very inspirational book. It's accessible. It's powerful. It's a memoir. She's very personal in the book, and it's also a manifesto. So it's my read of the month, most probably of the year. And uh, if I had an unlimited budget, I'll be sent. I would be sending copies to every pediatrician I could get their phone number or their address to the ministers of health, the ministers of of the MECs of health within all the provinces. It's that type of a book. Uh, there's a phrase: agenda setting nonfiction. Or yeah, this is. If there's a book that should get that uh, that that title, uh, or yeah, that 
This is the book, The Deepest Well by Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, who got time for one giveaway. And that giveaway is the new Julian Barnes book. It's called The Only Story. It's the new novel from the author of the Man Booking Prize winning The Sense of an Ending, which was made into a movie. And the Sunday Times, that's in the UK, number one bestseller, The Noise of Time, about uh, the composer Shostakovich. First love has long-time consequences, but Paul doesn't know anything about that at 19. At 19, he's proud of the fact that his relationship flies in the face of social convention. As he grows older, the demands placed on Paul by love become far greater than he could possibly have foreseen. Tender and profound, the only story, that's the title of the book, is an incisive novel by one of fiction's great mappers of the human heart. To win a copy of Julian Barnes, The Only Story, WhatsApp or SMS us. The SMS number is 061-895-1019 and the WhatsApp number is 34519. You should all save the WhatsApp number into your phones. So as soon as there's another competition, you have quick access to it. That's 061-895-1019. The SMS number, also save in your phones, is 34519. And give us your name and the title of the book that you're currently reading. That's your name, the title of the book that you're currently reading, and the new Julian Barnes. He's a Booker Prize winning author. The title of this book is The Only Story it could be yours. It's literary fiction, but it's uh, one of those books that every, you know, everyone who enjoys good literary fiction will be reading. And uh, those are the books that I'm going to discuss. And we'll have a short break, and then we'll be joined in the studio by Terry Shakonovsky, who'll be talking about her book, The Knock on the Door, the story of the detainees' parents' support committee, a very, very important book chronicling the story, the history of an important anti-apartheid organization. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is such an exciting moment. Terry Shakanovsky, who was a co-host here on People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, is in the studio to discuss her book. It is very exciting to have someone who was on this side of the... (laughs) microphone on the other side and congratulations for a very important book it's a very readable book even though the topic the subject content is very heavy and it's a very very valuable addition to south african history thank you Stephen, and thank you for having me back it's just wonderful to be back in the studio now i'm going to ask you the same question all our interviewed authors get and we all want to know what you've been doing in the last year. So can you introduce, reintroduce, it's not introduce, it's can you reintroduce yourself to our listeners in your own words, on your own terms? Well, as, as I hope our listeners know, as you say, I was one of the, the co-hosts of People of the Book. And I look back on my time in the studio and with the program with such fond memories. It was a very, it was really a privilege to be able to do what I did. I have since gone on. I'm not doing it any longer because I'm now working full-time for something called the Mapungubwe Institute for Strategic Reflection. And it's a think tank um, whose aim is to to produce long-term strategies about some of the issues facing South Africa. They try and stand above day-to-day 
issues of politics and, and policy and reflect on, on issues long term. So hopefully we are succeeding. What's been nice is they put out a vast range of publications. Not, not, not so many, but in terms of a diversity of subjects, I've enjoyed that. Everything ranging from, ranging from ethics to mathematics to education. So I'm using different skills from the ones I used on people of the book. I'm doing more, more editing. Um, but as you know, I've also in the meantime uh, finalized the book that I was working on all the time, the knock on the door. And, and here I am. The detainee, the detainee's parent support committee, who were they? What was their purpose? So the Detainees Parents Support Committee was formed in 1981 in the wake of the detention, um, as it was called in South Africa at the time, of a whole lot of young activists. And one of those, it was really the, the, the resurgence of, in the wake of 76 and the severe crackdown that came after that, um, it took kind of until 1981 again for some kind of political activity to, to start up again. And I think what was very worrying for the state was that it was, this was much more non-racial in character. And while there had been consistent detentions, this was one of the first that targeted activists in the white community, and not only in the white community, um, elsewhere too. But there were there were a number of young activists picked up. The first one of them was was Barbara Hogan, and the story of that is is in the book. But another one of the of the activists pick, picked up was somebody called Keith Coleman. And his parents, Audrey and Max Coleman, along with, with many, many others, it wasn't only the Colemans by any means, but got together with other parents, with other siblings, husbands, wives to say, what can we do for our loved ones held in that terrifying building in, in John Foster Square? And the extraordinary thing, you know, there's no doubt that they were allowed, to, that they did what they did, could they were able to do what they did because they were white. They, that would never have been afforded. Winnie Mandela tried to start something similar in the wake of the 76 uprising, and the repression was swift and brutal. She was detained. The organization was crushed. But I think the achievement of the DPSC is that they were able to extend the gains they made to people of all races, and it grew into this nationwide organization, which became really a mirror of South Africa in the 80s. This book is it's a big project it was a big project and it's also a collaborative endeavor together with Sharon Court who's your co who you, you, who you co-wrote the book with but there were also other people as part of a big team mm. can you tell us about the, the project as a whole well, the project has very interesting origins. It was commissioned by Daphne Mashila and Corsi, who was at the time one of the, the young DPSC workers from Soweto. She and others had started something called DAM, the detainee aid movement in Soweto itself, but it was just impossible for them to do the work. The raids were so frequent. And, and so when the DPSC appeared, she describes again, it's in the book how when Max Coleman appeared to make the links, they just thought they, they, they couldn't quite believe what they were seeing. And eventually they moved their offices into the DPC and it became one. But Daphne was a child of 76. Um, unfortunately, this part isn't in the book because we had to choose. But, you know, her story is, as you, you, you realize when you start interviewing people, the, the image we all have, that famous photograph of Hector Peterson. I was quite shocked to realize for how many South Africans that was a reality. You know, they just happened to be a photographer at the time that Hector Peterson was killed. But Daphne and Quite a few others of the people interviewed in the book did have a friend shot next to her in, in 76. She describes her, her whole story and being on the rung as, uh, as a young student. Um, but she came from a very poor family. Her mother was a seamstress. She was one of five children. Her memories were of not having, not being able to sing in the choir because she didn't have shoes, of not having enough money to have sandwich spread even on her bread for school. And 
she now owns a mine, <laughs> is the head of a mine. Fast forward to many, many, many years later, has been voted one of Africa's leading CEOs. And so with the social responsibility trust that, that Kalahari Mine, the mine that Daphne heads up, um, she, she wanted to sponsor this book because she felt that it had very relevant stories for South Africa today. And also she wanted to honor the Coleman's. She wanted to honor Max and Audrey Coleman, who were for her, I think, really a role model and one of the many, many things she talks about, which we all took for granted at the time, but perhaps not so much in current day South Africa, she talks still now, decades later, about the fact that the Colmans never took a penny. They never even paid themselves a salary, never mind um, taking more over and beyond that, although this was a funded organization with eventually quite a large number of funds moving in and out. And that for Daphne is one of the articles of, of faith that she holds on to. How did you... Get involved in the project that you you were doing a radio <laughs> show and many other things. Then well, how did this become your project? Well, you know, as as I, I think you know, Stephen, my background is actually television. I worked for the BBC for years, and and I didn't fancy working for SABC. So when I got back to South Africa, I decided I would just write freelance, write for whoever would have my services and do a radio show and do various other kinds of. So I was approached as as a freelance writer, and in fact, the first draft had already been written by the time I came on board, but it had taken quite a different turn. It was a much much more academic book. Um, and there was a feeling amongst the, amongst the, the writer who started Sharon Court and Lauren Siegel, who's one of the p- people who commissioned the project and Daphne and Audrey, that, um, it was, it was a little bit too academic, that they wanted something that was more readable, that would speak to the experiences of South Africa. So as always happens, I was called in just to give initially a reader's report. Then, I, you know, in light of the suggestions I'd made, they said, well, could you write up a structure? Then I wrote up a structure. They said, well, could you just write the first chapter of the structure? And then it was too late. Then I just, ended up, you know, rewriting much, much of the book together with Sharon. And it was a very rich and rewarding experience to work together for both of us. I feel we really enriched each other's work and were able to get the best out of each other. The DPSC's archives, which are now housed at Wits University, they must be large, very extensive and very comprehensive. How did you transform that archive into this concise but crystal clear and very powerful book? <laughs> well, thank you for that. Thank you for that, because the only answer I can give you, Stephen, is with difficulty. Um, it was really quite overwhelming because there are probably, I'd say, I never actually counted them, but probably around 80 cardboard boxes. And you start unpacking these boxes. And it's very, very rare for a writer or a researcher to have the problem that the material is so strong that you don't know where to start because you you would open one box and there would be a story so powerful, often so horrifying, but of such compelling human interest and historical significance that you could just write a whole book about that and then there was more behind that and then there was another box and another box and another box. But it was also very hard because much of what we were reading were were really just very shocking accounts of brutality and of torture. And even though you know if you lived in South Africa in the 80s, the children were detained, when you read in black and white the document after document oh, about children, you know, in one occasion as young as seven, but very often 11, 14, 16, and you think of your own <laughs> your own child at home, um, it's it's very hard to keep reading. It's very hard to see it all translated into paper. And as I say, even for those of us who lived through it, to be confronted by the physical evidence, by the the, the, the records, was quite a difficult thing. 
who did you interview for the book? Uh, there must have been some we'll keep this for after the ad break but everyone listening in the car now this is what we're going to answer this is the answer we're going to get who did you interview for the book and who were the very memorable interviewees oh I'll answer that after the break People of the Book on 101.9 High FM yeah, this is People on the Book on 101.9 High FM this is a very rare show because <laughs> we've got the current and uh uh, a former co-presenter of the show in conversation. It's so exciting to have Terry Shakanovsky in. Just before the ad break, I asked, who did you interview for your book, The Knock on the Door? It's the story of the detainees' parents' support committee. The most memorable interviews. You know, as we were talking about before the break, I came in once the project was already well underway. So I didn't do quite a few of the interviews. But um, my contribution perhaps was that because there were a lot of interviews done with the founders and we did revisit some of those but the most memorable interviews uh, the most memorable interviews were the saddest interviews the ones that just took me days and weeks to to get over you know the it's very very hard to to listen to descriptions of torture um but it's it's not only torture. What 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 you start? What I started to realize as I wrote the book, and so I'll you know I'll tell you the names in in a moment. But is that this was a generation that really paid for their freedom with with their youth, and so it wasn't only detention and torture. It was never going home for seven years, being on the run, never being able to sleep at home because there were PMPs at every corner. There were ne- always, you know watching your friends die around you. But these were such kids. And now to talk to these people who are, you know, pillars of society, many of them in government with their own children, and they look back and are just astounded. They say we were children, you know, we were th- that we were doing this. One of them pulled out a photograph. Um, it was very sad. It was um, Obed Bapela, who is a minister in government, and his wife, Connie Bapela, was one of the longest-serving um, detainees, emergency detainees, eventually set fire to her mattress to win her own freedom. But he pulled out this picture of Connie, who was this slim young thing, and said, can you believe this little girl You know, took on the apartheid state? So that was very, very moving. And it's a lot of the people that, that are in government now that we spoke to. Either we spoke to them directly or we pulled up their, their stories from the TRC or for, or for other accounts. So the stories in there that you'll read about, because everybody comments, you know, to read all these famous South Africans in a different. But, you know, there's Barbara Creasy, who's the current MEC of Finance, who was one of the driving forces behind this book. And really, she guided us politically. She she shaped what we were writing, just kind of held the clarity for us. But there's Barbara Creasy's stories there, Pravin Gordon. Story is there. Nomvulio um, Mokonyani, who's so much in the news. Um, Desmond Tutu, as you've seen, has has written the forward. Obed Bapela, who I said is another minister. There are Connie Seope Sengwe, who's keeper, speaker of, of the, the Northern Cape Assembly. So there are so many, many, many names. And I think this isn't really speaking directly to the interview, but it's really a reminder we forget. I wonder how many people know, or if they know, remember, that our current president, Sil Ramaphosa, was detained twice, was in solitary confinement for 11 months. Um, Pravin Gordon, who, as we know, has been, you know, was a man tortured to the, almost to the point of death. He was lucky to escape with his life. It's just not part of our consciousness. You know, we don't know. I don't know. Um, I, ha- I haven't stopped to count how many people in the cabinet were detained or tortured. And 
I think it's a very important question to ask because it is part of what's happening in South Africa today. It is part of our national discourse, but somehow we've forgotten about it. And I think until we address that, really, we're not going to have the stable, democratic, just South Africa that everybody wants. I wrote a question down, but you've actually touched on it already. A lot of the material in the book is quite harrowing. Mm. You say all the torture. Um, But this is the truth of the fight against apartheid especially during the state of the emergencies in the 1980s. And you don't shy away from that in the book. You don't give us a saccharine history of South Africa. Can you share what you really have? You shared with our listeners some of the episodes that left a very strong impression on you. You said it took you sometimes weeks or months just to process and get over the the effect that these records had on you. So you've already spoken to that, but as as a reviewer and as an interviewer, I don't want people to miss the point that the book is just a nice story about the the detainee parents support committee. You've documented a lot of harrowing stories, and that is part of our history. And I also do worry how much of the the result of that torture lies deeply buried under the surface in South Africa. Uh, and maybe in your current job, you can look at ways how we can deal with that stress deal and that. That, that those feelings so that as a country, we can move beyond. We can't just wait for everyone that's happened to, to pass away and then, you know, build a new future. We've got to build the future now. Well, nobody knows it better than the Jews. And I, I said to a lot of the people that I spoke to, I said, you know, as a Jewish South African, I can tell you that, you know, it was my grandparents' generation that fled the Holocaust, that fled the pogroms. But it was only the grandchildren, who is really my generation, that, that spoke about it because it was too recent. And I was actually talking, I'm going to be doing a talk about the book at the Holocaust Center as well. And I was talking to Tully Nates, who heads up the center, about this as well. And she was saying that survivors, it's not only survivors' guilt, it's also survivors' shame of every trauma. They can't talk about it. It's too, it's too new. And for these people that went through the struggle, they, they, it's very hard to talk about the trauma, the humiliation, the brutality of what they went through. But my hope is that if not their children, certainly their grandchildren will, will pick that up. And the other thing I just wanted to say about the brutality is, of course, it's not only those brutalized. It's not only those tortured. It's also the torturers. It's also the people doing um, the carrying out the brutality that, that were traumatized. And what you realize when you go through these records is that much of the worst terror happened when the army was unleashed on the townships. And these were 16, 17, 18-year-old boys um, who, were, who were utterly terrified. You know, the, the, the people throwing stones at them didn't realize it at the time, but they too were terrified, even though they had the guns and the, the hippos. And you know, the sometimes unspeakable things they did have also stayed with them forever. And as you say, I think as a nation, we, we have to address it somehow. And the DPSC's, one of the DPSC's great achievements was to take the whole experience of detention into the public domain to say, look, this is going on. It is all of our problem. And in a way, the reverse has happened. It's what I was saying about, you know, Sul Ramaphosa. Somehow it's become everybody's private problem. It's not in the national discourse. And exactly as you say, I think we need to change that if, if we are to heal. Your book also includes a lot of actual documents from the the DPSC's archives, and many pages are devoted to newspaper articles, the actual article, or posters, or photographs. This really anchors the history 
the book into our commonly lived history experiences and all our points of reference. When I see an article from the Saturday Star written by the the DPSC, I remember seeing those articles in the Saturday Star when I was growing up. It's you must not, have been very young, Stephen. <laughs> it's not just it's not just a, a, a record. You've made it very real. I want to ask you how did the decision to include actual documents, actual posters in the book? Was it a discussion and how did you choose what to include in the book? Uh, you know, that was really a, a quite a a challenging part of the book because the initial um, idea for the book was actually to do more of a coffee table book with we were going to have rice paper interleaving with people's own descriptions of detention in between and photographs because it is such a document rich history there are all the archives that I was talking about plus as you say the newspaper clips etc etc but it's very expensive to produce a book like that. It wouldn't have been able, you know, Pan Macmillan would not have been able to sell that for under 400 rand as a minimum and possibly more. And we wanted the book to be more accessible. And the publishers, this was not a commercial venture anyway. I, th- I really salute and I'm very grateful to Pan Macmillan for taking it on board because, you know, it's not, it's not a particularly commercial venture. So they felt it needed to be cheaper. So we already had to compromise on our vision of the archive. And then we argued paper by paper because there were so many outstanding documents that could go in you've seen some of them and each one had to be debated and why this one and not that one and um so in the end it was just it was a question it was a bit like sophie's choice we all had our very favorites and our you know we had to choose which ones to to leave out but it was difficult we we in conversation with terry shekhanovsky we're talking about her new book the knock on the door the story of the detainees parents support committee i've got many many more questions that we're going to try to get through as many of them straight after this ad break people of the book on 101.9 high fm this is people of the book on 101.9 high fm we are in conversation with Terry Shakanovsky, the book is The Knock on the Door, the story of the detainees' parents' support committee. We've got a few minutes left, and if anyone's listening and would like to send in a question or a message to Terry, the WhatsApp number is 0618951019, and our SMS number is 34519. If you've got any questions you'd like to send in, We'll read, we'll, we'll read them out. Terry will address them. So that's, uh, WhatsApp 3061-895-1019, or you can WhatsApp us on 34519. But there's a few more questions that I've got. Who were the great personalities of the, the DPSC? Well, certainly the Colmans, Max and Audrey Coleman. And it's quite a story because Audrey was, you know, a northern suburbs lady. She was working at the Black Sash, but leading, you know, a very conventional northern suburbs life. And Max Coleman was a very, very, he's a successful businessman. He is um, a, a chemist by, by training, a, a doctor of chemistry. Um, but he had was running a very successful business. And the day that Keith was detained, he actually, he went in shortly after he resigned his position and he never went back. To his business, they dedicated themselves to to this organisation. So they were one of the the huge. And then there were no high profile black people in the organisation at the time because they simply would have been detained. And you know, Audrey and Max both say how it was a strategy not to have anybody as a high profile, so that if anybody was detained, the organisation could continue going. But the the spokespeople that were most visible and that the names that are most closely associated with the DPSC are Max and Audrey Coleman. The, the DPSC became uh, a channel 
for foreign governments who wanted to help fight apartheid get involved in the the anti-apartheid struggle. How did that work? Well, that was very interesting because eventually, to our amusement, you can track. I mean, Max was, I think it was his training as a scientist. He was the most meticulous keeper of records. So, you know, you can track how they each, you know, made little donations and eventually the donations grew and there are records of all of this. Eventually, there were people clamoring to donate to the DPSC because it had, it was an organization that had such credibility and with the sanctions movement that was on in South Africa in the 80s, it was a way for organizations and governments to have some credibility about what they were doing to fight apartheid. And so it's very, very amusing when you actually get to, when you go through the, the box that deals with funding and then you get to the letters from the DPSC saying, thank you, we don't actually want your money because there were some very compromised organizations. I don't actually remember which ones there were, but I think was it perhaps Kodak or someone similar? It was a big American company. I remember them saying, you know, look, thanks, we don't accept donations. But there was there were a lot, as you say, the Canadians gave a lot, the Scandinavian governments um, and the Americans contributed. The second, the penultimate question, what are you working on? Are you working on any writing projects at the moment that might one day become another book? You know, I, I'd had enough of writing books for a while and I'm trying to set up a blog, which I would love to come back to you when it's ready to go and, and, and you'll tell me. I'd love to advertise it on people's book and you'll tell me, you'll give me the frank feedback, Stephen, about what, how it's doing. Um, so no books in the pipeline at the moment. I'm just working on editing and, of course, publicizing this book and lots of smaller, smaller projects. And then the last question I want to ask you is, this is a very important book. And it's not a commercial venture. I'm sure you've got a passionate message for all of our for all of our for all of our listeners about what they can do to get involved with this with this important book. Oh no, absolutely. Thank you for giving the opportunity to me because the first thing I want to do is appeal to people, please to buy the book for themselves for a gift. Um, as I say, Pan Macmillan really are not standing to, the, who are the publishers are not standing to make money and any profits from the book do go into a trust. Nobody's going to make any money from the book. And I want to ask people please to consider, even if they do have the book, or to perhaps to consider buying it for a library or for perhaps their child's school library because this is part of our history of South Africa. And as we're saying, it's a part that right now there's so much going on. We're still so desperately trying to build the country that there isn't time to talk about this. But I hope it will be a record for when the children and grand children and great-grandchildren are ready and I hope that the youth of today will start reading about it so I very much hope it will go into libraries and please follow us on social media there's a knock on the door hashtag on Twitter um, and contact me I'd love to hear from anybody interested in, in doing anything with this book You had a very very successful launch last week in Johannesburg at Johannesburg and then two nights later in Cape Town with Pravin Gordon so it was it was quite a week and the book sold out at the launch which the publisher said had never happened before so the interest the interest is there and it was very powerful to talk to Pravin Gordon and to you know very respectfully say you know what do you do with these memories I said to him where do you put this now and there was this moment of silence I mean he's such a public figure and he just said look you never forget you know but but talked about the need for it to be remembered. So, yeah, the launches have been very inspiring. This has been an absolute, like a ma magical moment. And just <laughs> the sense of having, you know, the two of us together. Uh, the book's not an easy read, but it's a very important read. And as you said, I think people should consider buying a copy of this book for the historical record, for your children's school's library, 
for yourself. You know, we all lived through this in the 1980s, and it's an important record that does exist. So I think on behalf of South Africa, we have to thank you and Daphne and Sharon and Lauren for your involvement and Macmillan for producing a very important historical record. And I want to thank you, Stephen, for having me back in the studio for the thoughtful, thorough interview that you gave me as you give all your authors. I listen with great pleasure to the program now, and it's just lovely to be back again with all the listeners. Until next week, good Shabbos and keep reading.